Well, I never talk about climate change without focusing some on adaptation. Uh, and uh, partly that comes uh, seeing Matt Ridley in the audience from uh, his, his book, The Rational Optimist. Uh, I'm the always the rational optimist in the in the sense of what human beings can do and uh, climate change has always seemed to me to be one where adaptation is is has to be a much bigger part of the uh, discussion than it than it is uh, I came here via Hawaii Montana Hawaii I don't know why I didn't just stay there but anyway uh, uh, and in Hawaii uh, we at the conference was uh, an economist Orly Ashenfelter who studies wine. I mean, that's the perfect kind of thing to study. And uh, as he was talking about wine prices, he started talking about how much wine production is moving. And uh, the data on the movement of, of, of crops is, is amazing. And uh, uh, there's a wonderful postcard in Montana of a bunch of people standing in front of a cabin with big fur coats and, and boots, and they're up to the snow, snow up to their knees, and it's, the caption is uh, "Annual Convention of Montanans for Global Warming." So, uh, you know, it may be a good thing in places like Montana. Uh, well, enough uh, about adaptation for me. We're going to hear from two people who uh, are far uh, better versed than I am. Uh, uh, when Maria, I, I think Nick came across one of your studies, Maria, I turned my chair a little bit, uh, and uh, she has looked at historical adaptation, which I think was just is fascinating. So we're going to start with her, and then we're going to uh, turn to Matt Kahn, uh, which is always uh, a drink from the fire hose, so be, be ready for that. Uh, Matt has his own book on adaptation, so you'll, uh, you'll get uh, plenty from him. But we'll turn it now to Maria. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for inviting me um, uh, to the session and to the conference. Um, yeah, so I'm an economist, and I'm interested in understanding um, climate change impact and climate change adaptation to climate change um, in the past. And so one might wonder, why should we worry about understanding adaptation to climate change in the past? And I think there are a few reasons that, that make very um, enriching to try and understand these um, processes, even though they took place quite a while ago. So first of all, Nowadays, in our society in the US and in most European societies, we're actually not so used anymore to think about the environment and what impact it would have and how it would um, make our daily lives more difficult to have certain climatic conditions. Whereas in the past, that was um, everywhere on our planet, including in European countries, that was just daily life. And so as a result, I see these historical settings as a treasure trove of experiences that European economies have made with environmental factors, with climatic change. And I, in my research, I try to 
make this treasure trove of, of experiences accessible um, to, uh, um, to, to our conversation about um, adaptation to climate change today. Another thing I like about studying climate change adaptation in the past is that it allows for a long-term perspective. And in many cases, the adaptation processes I have seen took a long time. And studying even 10 or 15 years of current day adaptation, well, you know, sometimes studies have found surprisingly little evidence of adaptation. And in the past, we have the opportunity to really look at processes from the beginning to the end and um, uh, making sure we're not missing the interesting stuff that might develop maybe not after 10 years, but maybe after 30 years or after two generations. So this long-term perspective, I find, is very compelling when thinking and wanting to understand long-term uh, processes of adaptation. And finally, what I've seen is that many of the barriers to adaptation and many of the factors for success in the past and today are actually quite surprisingly similar. So of course, <clears throat> I'm trying to learn from these experiences. Um, the important, um, important part of this exercise is, because I'm not only thinking about these as, a, as an economic historian who wants to understand the past, I'm really interested in, that, in learning something for today. And part, an essential part of this exercise is to th then think about, okay, which are, the, which are the factors that would matter today? still, or which other factors are maybe less important today because we have different technologies and so on. So um, uh, there's something I always want to mention that I'm not just you know, using experience from long ago and then say, well, look, back then it was like this and today it's automatically um, um, the same, um, far from it. So let me start out by saying that adaptation is really something that has been adaptation to climatic challenges, to environmental change, has been something that has basically been a constant feature of uh, of of life in European um, economies in the past. Because that's that's by oh, for economies worldwide actually, mm, and that's because for once, when you look far back. It's clear that climate is something that has always been changing and evolving. And so societies had to adapt either because local climate was changing or because they had to, or because local conditions were changing, for example, population growth, and then local resources were no longer enough, and they had to adapt their economic processes to make do with what they had. And in some cases, these adaptation processes have been su successful. So for ex 
if we want to go really far back, for example, the migration of um, the human species out of Africa to other world regions was successful in the sense that they managed to adapt to new conditions there, and now we see humans basically everywhere. In other cases, they were not, not successful, and um, some civilizations have declined as a result of changing um, climatic conditions, or I should rather say, in a situation where changing climatic conditions were one of the factors. For example, the North, North population in Greenland became com completely extinct uh, in the 1500s. Uh, and one of the, the studies that look at this experience shows that they didn't manage to um, adapt their local institutions to um, their climatic changes, which brought at the time cooler weather to their um, uh, uh, to their to their territory, in which forced them to change their institutions, which were they didn't do, and so nowadays they are extinct. So there's this, I want to highlight that there are success stories of adaptation, and you know people talk a lot about how humans are great at adapt adapting, and I think it's true, but this is not the, um, the only outcome there is. So one of the oldest adaptation strategies in history um, has been migration. So one, so back back in the days when the societies were mostly nomadic and there were no political um, boundaries to migration, that was just the natural thing to do. You didn't have anyone what you needed locally, so your best chance of survival was to move to a different place. Um, I, in one of my studies, I. Um, look at, on the, at the impacts of climatic change during the Little Ice Age. So the Little Ice Age was a climatic period between about 1350 and 1800. And I look at, um, at impacts of this long-term climatic change. And what I see is that people during this time were also more likely to um, to migrate, especially from rural to urban settings, um, as a response to these changing cooler climatic conditions, which was, it became too cold, basically, for agricultural production, and agricultural production went down. So um, workers, more workers decided to migrate to cities. There's also ample evidence of, of climatic um, shocks that encourage international migration. So for example, in 1850, a huge volcanic eruption, the Mount uh, Tambora uh, uh, broke out and it brought, it ejected so much ash into the air that um, the sky was darkened for two to three years. And the, 18, the summer of 1850 is also called for that reason, the, the year without a summer. As a result, uh, crop failure was omnipresent in, um, well, we have evidence from Europe, so I talk about Europe. Um, 
in large parts of Europe. And as a result, some um, areas, for example, in Swabia and southern Germany, so that's the area where today we've got Porsche and Mercedes, um, around Stuttgart, in that area, a huge wave of migration to the US um, ensued. That's basically just because people didn't have enough, people were starving, didn't have enough to eat, and one of the outside options at the time was to, um, to migrate. Another example was a, um, a famine in the 1860s in Sweden, which also lasted several years and which really led to an exodus of, Swede of the Swedish population to, of, well, of parts of the Swedish population to the US. And what, what, what I want to, 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 to stress is how, hey, we have an, an environmental climatic shock. There's a crop failure, migration. But far from being kind of an automatic reaction to this climatic shock, people responded not only to the climatic change, but also to the conditions, to the socioeconomic conditions that they were facing at the time in their home country. And both Swabia um, and Sweden at the time were kind of backward, very agricultural societies, very, very poor, and, very, and people had very little financial cushion. So as a reaction, they chose to, uh, to migrate away. Interestingly, both governments noticed that they were losing people working, lo losing basically their labor force, and decided to react. And in, in Swabia, it was the, uh, the beginning of a reform period, and the Swabian king would start to uh, would institute um, co agricultural colleges to educate the peasantry about how to increase agricultural production. It was, um, uh, he was um, introducing um, banks for the peasantry. And um, and in Sweden, likewise, it was the beginning of a uh, social welfare system was set up to because basically the uh, the king of Swabia and also the the Swedish government they were vying for the resource, resources of uh, of their local labor and didn't want to lose it to um, uh, to out migration. So. I think what's interesting is how we can see how um, uh, how many factors, conditions on the ground, resilience to this econo to this climatic shock that occurs, um, outside options, and also then later on reaction to these um, to this exodus of uh, of of people to the U.S. Um, all form part of the impact that this environmental um, change has had on a society. And I think it's important to look at such impacts in, in this whole complexity. Another, um, another natural way of adapting to climatic uh, changes was trade. In, so in my paper on the Little Ice Age, I talk about well, I, so, so the starting point for this paper was that I wanted to study 
long-term climatic change and see whether this, instead of, um, of studying year-to-year -year changes in weather and then year-to-year -year changes in an economic outcome variable, I wanted to look, well, what if we look at long-term climatic change and possibly in this long-term climatic change, people have time to adapt. They kind of get the information that there's something systematically changing, and then they have time to adapt. Do we still see an impact? Well, in my, in my work, I still found a significant impact of these long-term weather changes, and then I asked, well, why is that? Is it because people didn't, didn't adapt? Or is it that people adapted, but it just wasn't sufficient to compensate for the losses of these adverse temperature changes? And I look at um, very detailed um, trade data, and what I, for, for a subset of my sample, and what I find is that um, those cities that were especially affected by the ice age actually did start trading more. So I see that as a way of compensating for the losses of the, the temperature changes by increased trade. And then what I also find, and for me that's, that's one of the most exciting um, results um, in this paper, is that when I look, when I estimate different impacts of the Little Ice Age for those cities that were part of a long-distance trade network and others that were not, then what I find is that um, the cities that were part of, long, of a long-distance trade network, they, I basically find basically no effect of, at all of the temperature changes. So um, this overall um, evidence is also you know, um, there's additional evidence, more anecdotal evidence from other, from Italy, for example, where you can see that cities that were um, um, in times of um, famine and crisis, those city-states that were especially, uh, that were already part of long-distance trade networks um, had, a, had, were able to change imports to the city-state and to um, uh, to avert famine, whereas other cities that were other city-states that didn't didn't already have these trade relationships in place, it was basically impossible for them. Or, and if they managed, it was very costly for them to start importing grain from other um, areas. So my results and also the other historical evidence really shows trade and free trade flows as a, a very powerful tool of adaptation. Um, one last example um, is um, uh, crop switching. So that's also something we talk, you know, that's being talked about today. Well, just start growing different crops. Um, and one very important crop that European uh, farmers became um, acquainted to in the, in, the, in, the, in, in the early modern period was the potato. It came from, from, the, from the American continent, from the Andes, um, and at the time, Europe was very regularly prey to famine, and it was the time of the Little Ice Age was 
kind of wet and cold and generally conditions that were actually not suited for the cultivation of wheat um, that were mostly uh, grown in Europe. And here comes the potato, and it turns out that the potato is actually perfect for these kind of conditions. And you would kind of expect that very rapidly it should be adopted everywhere and people would be so happy to have the potato. And interestingly, that's not at all what happened. It took more than 100 years to um, uh, to have the potato grown in wider parts um, of Europe. And there are a number of factors that, um, that, that lead to this slow development. One was that there was immense mistrust towards this new plant, which looked odd and which had funny skin. And there were all kinds of, of superstitious beliefs about how it was the devil's uh, vegetable. And um, and here comes a... Was the, uh, that was in this kind of situation, it was the political rulers who had a very important impact on the fact that at some point the potato did get adopted. So, for example, um, Marie-Antoine, um, uh, the, the French uh, queen in the 18th century, for example, started um, putting potato flowers in her hair and to... Um, you know, very much like an in, really very much like an influencer today who would say, "Well, I'm not really giving you any information, but I kind of make you feel better about this product, and you can trust. You know, you can you can look at me and and um, and, and then there's Frederick the Great of Prussia, who's who understood that this mistrust towards the, the potato was also part of this, a lack of information on how to grow it, what to do with it. And he, start, he started sending out wagon loads of, of seed potatoes to all distant villages in, his, in, in Prussia. And also, and I think that's very smart, um, also people who accompanied these um, wagon loads of uh, seed potatoes explaining people how to, how to, what to do with it, basically. So um, in this example, you can see how um, um, we need the, uh, the, the private agency of, um, of um, agents in the economy, but in certain, uh, in certain um, crucial points, the coordinating uh, educational effort of the ruling elite uh, was needed for, um, for successful adaptation. Very good. Matt. Terry, thank you. Folks, Maria is doing fascinating work. And I am going to take us, stop thinking about lunch. And I hope uh, there's some optimists in the room. I, so I can't see my slides. This is going to be double dangerous. <laughs> Folks, I want to talk about the microeconomics of adapting to climate change. And Maria's work, historical work, is really important. Um, and I, what I'm going to be talking about is rules of the game to accelerate our adaptation progress. Folks, here 
our global carbon concentration over the last 60 years. And we haven't bent this curve. And I desperately hope that we will bend this curve, but I don't think we will. I am excited about energy consumption in the developing world. We need, as uh, Terry and as John Cochran talked about, we need more energy consumption in the developing world. And I unfortunately believe we're gonna continue to run this experiment. So in environmental economics today, there's tremendous optimism about carbon mitigation, and there's sort of mixed feelings about adaptation. I'm sort of the bad boy in this field. That I am a pessimist about our ability to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but I'm a deep optimist about our ability to adapt to climate change because of the microeconomics I see, and in large part due to the research of Hoover economists that I'd like to talk about in my brief 15-minute remarks. So folks, what rules of the game will accelerate the pace of climate change adaptation? My mother, who I think is watching on Zoom, says to me, Matthew, no magical thinking. I say, Mom, no magical thinking. I want to think about how do we set up, when we face a known unknown with potentially very scary consequences, how do those of us who are risk averse and aware of the challenges we face, how do we set up rules of the game to accelerate our adaptation progress? And folks, the crisis of COVID and what we experienced with work from home and the development of the vaccines only increases my optimism about our ability to adapt when we have the right incentives in place. How can markets help us? So what I wanna do in this brief talk, and this is your fire hose, how can markets help us to adapt to the challenge of climate change? How do, when do government policies at the federal and local level promote effective adaptation? Conversely, when do government policies slow down effective adaptation? And what's the political economy of undoing those rules? What role can real estate markets play in encouraging adaptation? What role can mortgage markets and insurers play as the adult in the room? Folks, this will be a US talk, but of course my PhD students are working in the developing world on these issues where frictions exist, and there's very exciting work to be done, but this, in the name of a 16-minute talk, is gonna be a US talk. I wanna lead with the air conditioner. So folks, a great paper, which I actually didn't write, a tough room, a great paper appeared in the Journal of Political Economy five years ago. The authors, a dream team, document, think of like Kansas in the year 1930. If it's over 90 degrees, many people died back then relative to how many die today when it's very hot. It's not that we have evolved into different humans in terms of our physiology. Over the 20th century, deaths from extreme heat declined because of the diffusion of air conditioning. Of course, part of that is due to rising incomes. As we grew richer, more of us could afford this adaptation product. But folks, Michael Boskin did crucial work about 25 years ago on the Boskin Report. If you look at the cell phone you're reading right now, that thing didn't exist in 1980 or 1990. Improvements in products, the price, the quality adjusted price of products is always declining. As the hedonic price of air conditioners declined, more and more people including poor people, could afford these products. And this is an example of free market adaptation. 
it is a reminder that when there's gains to trade between buyers and sellers, and here a transaction with no government participating, I've talked in my work about public cooling centers, and we can come back to that. Folks, here is the simple recipe. There was the anticipation, whether it's in Berkeley, California today, where it's getting hotter, where my mother-in-law lives, with rising aggregate demand, there is a profit motive for the capitalists to step up and deliver. Daron Asimoglio and Josh Lin wrote a great paper. Folks, I'm bald, if you haven't noticed. If I'm the only bald man on the planet, no Rogaine. <laughs> Tough room. If enough people face a challenge, we get innovation. Derone and Josh focused that as the baby boomers got older, the pharmaceutical companies focused on arthritis and knee replacements. But their paper is actually really important. And Derone's tired of me saying that it's his best paper. Uh, that this is a crucial paper in thinking about adapting to climate change. As more and more of us face challenges and are aware of this and are willing to vote our pocketbook, this creates a market inducing the next must to get to work. And this has crucial implications. Maria talked about free trade. Free trade and the extent of the market driving innovation through the profit motive. And right through the Boskin report, making poor people richer in terms of their purchasing power. Government policy. I am a fan, of course, of the National Science Foundation, except when they reject my grant proposals. Uh, what we need from the NSF and, we, and from pure public goods is satellite technology to help us to understand, to play this role of Paul Revere, to inform us for every parcel of land about the variety of challenges from sea level rise, but also heat, drought, the whole vector of challenges we face. The National Science Foundation and open science competition between the nerds in the room play this Paul Revere role, waking up. Uh, uh, traditionally in the New York Times, there's a view that this will wake up voters. In my view, uh, what it does is it wakes up entrepreneurs to see opportunities and profit motives out there to move the technological frontier out such that we keep innovating. Folks, at the local level, I'm a fan of competition. Let every city and locality compete against each other with different combinations of taxes and services running their own experiments to see how to offset risk, and then let people vote with their feet. In an overlapping generations model, there's always a new generation of young people who haven't chosen where to live yet, and those places that prove to be more resilient will attract footloose work from home workers to move there. They will have a tax base, and the mayors of those places will be rewarded. Folks, notice a consistent thinker. Competition again. Let's have a competition for who can be resilient here. More controversial, and I'm keeping an eye on Terry. Army Corps of Engineers. Here I've been a little bit of a bad boy. I'm a fan of human capital. In my fantasy world, the Army Corps of Engineers offers its expertise, but localities should pay for their own defenses. New York City should be paying for its own defense. I understand that America has poor cities, and they deserve special treatment. But for America's richer cities, it, local public goods should be financed locally. Building codes. Interesting questions here and debates in modern environmental economics about sort of benevolent paternalism. In a very interesting paper, Pat and Judd document that when wildfires rip through areas, homes built after the building codes perform better. We can think about the costs and benefits of such building codes, but that's very interesting empirical work. I'm keeping an eye on Terry. 
How do government policies hinder effective adaptation? Folks, there is the moral hazard hypothesis that when there is subsidized public insurance, whether it's crop insurance, whether it's fire insurance, whether it's national flood insurance, that this induces moral hazard through the Peltzman effect that we let our guard down. So let's do Bayless and Boomhauer because it's funny. In their work, when the government provides free firefighting, more people live in the fire zone. No one's laughing. It's, and so it's the job of the empirical economist to measure these effects and then for us, if we to incorporate these unintended consequences into thinking about are these policies good, taking into account their unintended consequences. I think we need much more work on what Gary Lodcap and Terry Anderson have done work on, on the role. How do we unleash entrepreneurship, similar to what I was saying about the air conditioner? When, we, when government caps the price of insurance, when it muffles price signals for water and for other key goods, this limits transactions and limits entrepreneurship. If we can unleash entrepreneurial forces here, we can adapt at lower cost for all of us. Folks, rip from the headlines. How many of you read the New York Times? An educated group. Folks, a headline. As the Colorado River shrinks, Washington prepares to spread the pain. Tough room. If we allowed the market mechanism to allocate water, that if we set prices to reflect scarcity, then there is less need for this rationing up top. And so these are the headlines I see when we don't allow safe prices to signal scarcity. Folks, Enrico Moretti's work. There is work in urban economics about the costs of center cities not building housing, Berkeley not building housing, San Francisco not building housing. Enrico Moretti wrote a great piece five years ago that more people are living in fire zones because we're not building housing where it's relatively safe. An unintended consequence of limiting transactions between real estate developers and people who want to live close to where they work is that you deflect middle class people into fire zones. My teacher, Gary Becker, who was associated with who for years argued that as the, as the deadweight loss, an awkward term, as the inefficiency of, of bad public policies rise, do we get reform? And I hope that is the case because if the San Francisco area continues to deflect people into fire zones because of center city zoning, the San Francisco region will be a less productive economy and will suffer overall. So competition will eventually bring down this region if there's limits to growth artificially caused by zoning where it's relatively safe, deflecting people into risky places. What role can real estate insurance and finance play? Folks, think of Phoenix in the year 2030 or Miami in the year 2040. Will a day of reckoning take place? So folks, let's take a quick poll. How many of you think that a day of reckoning will occur such that real estate will go to the price of zero there? <laughs> All right. <laughs> An argument that I make that has already been stated earlier this morning, asset owners in places that fail to adapt will suffer a wealth loss. This creates a resilience interest group. In my Climatopolis book from a decade ago, I argued we need cities to compete against each other for workers and firms, and that this creates a dynamic discovery process that accelerates adaptation. From basic finance, a location's real estate price reflects its fundamentals and its expectations of its future fundamentals. 
climate science plays the role of Paul Revere here. Few people, when they anticipate the challenges of how hot it will be in Phoenix in 20 years or the sea level rise challenge in Miami, will have fewer regrets in purchasing real estate. Folks, let's do this together. I, on Twitter, follow many streams. Uh, David Roberts recently talked about areas becoming unlivable. Miami, while facing sea level rise, has other charms that may attract people. Folks, suppose Phoenix is as hot in 2040 as some people predict it will be. It will attract those people who will, those work from home workers who might live there eight months a year and not be there during the summer. Sort of a Cape Cod in a work from home economy. So instead of asset prices crashing, you attract those who understand the risks of the place, are attracted perhaps by lower prices, and this is their right niche because of their lifestyle and their preferences. There is an ignoring of the fact of our diversity, that we have different goals and different talents, and Phoenix in the year 2040 will attract a set of asset buyers who fall into this niche. Folks, here's a project that I'm in the middle of. First Street Foundation is a nonprofit, so Moody's and Standard & Poor come out with credit ratings. First Street Foundation, for every address in the United States, is providing information on flood risk, fire risk, and heat risk. I typed in a certain home in California that I own. And what First Street Foundation is doing using climate science is that it's an honest broker coming out with scores. A 10 is bad and a 1 is good. So my home faces uh, the, the flood risk, and we were unaware of that. So First Street Foundation is playing this role of Paul Revere. And here's what we did in a recent paper. We partnered with Redfin, where First Street Foundation, Redfin is a competitor of Zillow, and if you're searching for a home, you can now find these scores for your home's risk. We documented that when people, when searching for a home, they do seek out this information on the risks of their home, and that they're more likely to collect this information, they're more likely to react to this information for those homes that have high flood scores. And we found that both in red states and blue states, equally responsive to this information. So there's not a red state, blue state divide on adaptation. And I think this is a hypothesis that I've posited for a decade now, that quietly one can reject a support for a carbon tax, but seek to be safe in one's own life and to use information in markets to achieve your goal. Two more points and I'll wrap up. Private insurers and mortgage lenders can be the adult in the room if government retreats from active involvement in these markets. In a world where mortgage lenders, uh, it, it, where there is a retreat by government, we will see spatial risk pricing of insurance and mortgages, and this will send adaptation price signals. A type of price discrimination will emerge. Premiums will be lower on higher ground. Lenders will lend at a lower interest rate and more generous with their capital in relatively safer areas. If we upzone in those areas, a more resilient capital stock emerges, and future natural disasters cause less future damage. Folks, an essential point. We all know, and this came up in our discussion of the Marshall Islands, this has come up several times this morning, that the poor face the greatest risks from climate shocks. How do we protect the poor and poor places who face the greatest risks here? I believe, as I talk about in bullet point number two, that this creates an economic growth imperative to reduce poverty around the world. Milton Friedman, 
in his support for vouchers and choice, came out in favor of housing vouchers for, and, and school vouchers. He was a consistent thinker. With housing vouchers, if we change our zoning rules to build more housing in relatively safe places, we avoid the threat of climate gentrification. There's a worry that we have a finite number of safe places, and if demand goes up in those places, rents go up there. But if we change our zoning codes to build up, to substitute capital for land in risky places, including the Marshall Islands, more people can live on higher ground. I think the federal government can encourage localities to experiment with pilot projects to accelerate our learning. Don't forget the Boskin Report. Poor people today, of course, face challenges, but prices per unit of quality continuously fall, and this needs to be tracked, and this is what I'm doing in my new work about the purchasing power of different individuals to protect themselves. Conclusion. Due to economic growth, more and more of us are shielded from climate change risks. The death toll from natural disasters is declining. John Cochran spoke about what we know about the macro growth effects of extreme temperatures, and I wrote a paper about this. If we allow prices to reflect scarcity in water markets, electricity markets, insurance markets, then we unleash entrepreneurship and allow our future entrepreneurs to trade with those of us, including myself, who want to be secure and safe in our increasingly risky world. So folks, I hope you see that irony there. Because climate change scares the hell out of me, I'm highly optimistic here. When does capitalism step up? I meet so many young behavioral economists who say to me, we don't know what we're facing here. <coughs> A growing share of us are increasingly aware of the realities we face, and this creates a profit motive unleashing capitalism. I had the pleasure of working with Terry and a large number of co-authors on this paper, The Critical Role of Markets in Climate Change. Be happy to share that with folks. My ongoing work is not just believing in magic. Me and my students, are we study the empirical benchmarks of adaptation progress. When does and when doesn't? When, when do we be, what are empirical measures that we're becoming better at taking a punch? As Mother Nature punches us harder, does that cause less pain, fewer deaths, less of a productivity loss? That's the adaptation test. Terry, finally a joke. Knowing that I didn't know the impacts of climate change, I turned to ChatGPT. I said, ChatGPT, will we adapt to climate change? And I'd ask you to read the answer. She's very smart, but notice there's no economics. There's no discussion of incentives. Uh, but um, shifting to more resilient and sustainable agricultural practice, this isn't a bad answer. So folks, uh, with that, you can double my book sales by buying a copy. Thank you. <laughs> take questions, but I think one of the themes that pops out here is that uh, institutions are a huge part of whether adaptation will occur and uh, a huge part of, of, of where adaptation has to occur in and of itself. Institutional adaptation is a, is a crucial part of it. I think Maria made that point quite nicely. And, and uh, I think there's been little focus on institutional change as, as it relates to uh, climate change. Uh, let me, there's a question there. John? Thanks. I, I know to get in my question fast around here. I have a quick one from Maria and a quick one from Matt. Uh, Maria, 
fascinated by the historical record, but the historical record looks like cold is more of a danger than heat, uh, and that the chance that we are exactly at the optimum for human prosperity right now, uh, who knows? Uh, Matt, <clears throat> love your stuff, um, but do we really need a big plan for adaptation? The time scale is so long, even in the US, infrastructure only takes 10 years to build, sea levels rising two millimeters a year. Um, do we need a plan, or do we just need to get out of the way? Uh, you, you didn't quite hit it hard enough. Uh, why did we rebuild New Orleans? Um, <laughs> cities decay and need to be rebuilt every 50 years, even if you don't do anything. You're certainly not gonna build a house where it's already wet. Uh, simply getting getting out of the way and not subsidizing all, all the bad places. Don't subsidize people to live in fire zones. Don't subsidize people to live in floodplains. Don't subsidize reconstructing in barrier islands. If you simply got out of the way, that might be the first step rather than a grand plan for adaptation. So, can I go first? So folks, I do not endorse a grand plan because I, I don't know who would be in charge of that plan. I, I wrote a paper a couple of years ago on the optimal durability of our capital stock. So folks, a joke. The paper was about Lego. If, if, if we build a capital stock that is less durable, then we lose less if we lose it. And so a very interesting question is, for assets at risk, how durable structures do we want to build there? Uh, you get into a field of dreams issue. If, if you make a big commitment to a new subway system, is this a Kevin Costner movie that brings everyone back? Or do we build a flexible system that as we learn, we can get up and go? And that that's a fight in urban economics that John is highlighting. And so about the question, what can we learn about from the little ice age, since now we are facing a period of warming. Um, <clears throat> so, um, how I think about it is that in both cases we are facing a climatic change. In both cases, uh, this climatic change reduced agricultural productivity and questioned our way of organizing the economy, questioned um, agricultural practices. So um, in that sense, you can learn in, from the Little Ice Age how, what, what was needed then and how successful adaptation took place in these circumstances, even though the exact uh, strategies to affect, to adapt to warming um, may very well be different than those that are um, used for adapting to a cooling period. To, to your point about uh, durability and the, the uh, uh, how durable do you want things, company towns understood this in the in the 19th century as they built around mines. They knew the mines were going to go be depleted, and they built structures that that were appropriate for for the the duration of the mine. And you know, people are people actually figure this out. <laughs> Terry, can I ask you a question on institutions? So Paul Romer spoke about charter cities, that we need new cities that a tabula rasa because they haven't locked into rules and interest groups. What institutions do you have in mind? Because I am so locked into market prices of, of, of price signals. What other institutions do we need? A rule of law? Of uh, well, I, I, I agree with you. It's the price signals, and what? How do we get the price signals? And that is to have people actually engaging in exchange, where the prices are a reflection of, of risk and and uh, and value. Uh, so. I, 
I think the, the place where there's a public good institution, you mentioned it briefly, you've written about it more, is, is to produce the information that we need. Uh, your, your last example here suggests that the market's doing it anyway, but, but, but the market isn't gathering the kind of satellite data that, that, that might be useful. So I think uh, institutional uh, change at the, at the federal level that produces information is, is really important. But I think the other thing is to, uh, again, it's really what you were saying, but I, I would call it a property rights question. If you buy a house in Florida and you're, you're on the beach and you know there's a storm surge, it's okay with me, I don't care, but it's your house and it's the storm surge that you're going to face. So make the property rights clear in that sense. And they're not clear if we say, well, buy a house in Florida or a better example would be for my wife and me, buy a house in Montana that's next to a forest that can burn. Well, <laughs> please subsidize my insurance. So I, <laughs> uh, so it, it's mostly a, a regulatory, uh, getting the regulations out of the way, but that's always the $64 question. Dean Loke, you had a question. Oh, behind you, Michelle. Yeah, I pre can you hear me? I appreciate the uh, point about competition of uh, local uh, cities or states to uh, you know, uh, foster adaptation, but what I observe at the state level are policies pretty much designed uh, to uh, focus on mitigation. Um, mandates for renewables and, and so on, which have basically no positive impact on state residents. And so, you know, wh why do we see that? Do you, have, have, do you have thoughts on that? Why do we see mitigation policies, policies at local levels when, in fact, it looks like adaptation policies at a local level would make more sense in, in your kind of microeconomic model? So what I learned from Matthew Cochin's work on voluntary restraint and from my 15 years in California, I'm proud of California as the greed guinea pig. And I think that I'm paying for this with my marginal tax rate that my wife reminds me about on a yearly basis right around now. Uh, so, uh, so Matthew Cochin emphasized that some of us derive dis don't want a free ride and, and that California seeks uh, through our education and in our progressive parts of the state seeks to have a low carbon footprint, even though the free rider hypothesis makes a different prediction on adaptation. In Climatopolis, I argued that even Republican mayors, and even if they were climate deniers, if they see they're losing their tax base because the area is becoming riskier, then irregardless of attribution, that they will take efforts to adapt to the challenge, that this is a business strategy. And folks, in our new work from home economy, I see none of you have read my new book, Going Remote, because so many of us are hybrid workers, we're now more footloose than ever, and are now more responsive to school quality, crime, natural disasters. So the rise of work from home increases our migration elasticity, if I can use a, a lingo word, and makes, us, makes it even more of a competitive strategy for states and localities to compete on being resilient. Uh, let's take one on this side first. Uh, there you go. And then I've observed in teaching especially that there's a real appeal to the directness of a mandate. People connect, oh, I don't like carbon emissions, need to get rid of carbon emissions. A rule, as opposed to a process, seems so much more tangible and direct. 
as people's concern or anxiety around climate change grows, do you think that demand for mandates, which are, I would argue, inherently less open to the type of innovation that you talk about, Matt, they will become a more popular policy restricting the scope for innovation and adaptation that seems to be so important? I love a true cynic. Oh, go ahead. Maria, did, did you want to tackle that? Folks, what I, I agree that my presentation has general equilibrium effects in it. And I, I love teaching young people. And I wrestle with uh, economics, our chain logic. Again, my mother says to me, Matthew, no magical thinking. And what is general equilibrium logic magical thinking versus what is it just logic? And so I wish we lived in a world where if we want to get to point B, we get to point A and we just jump to point B. Uh, there is a little bit of a leap into the unknown when you unleash market forces. My mother turns to me and says, Matthew, how long until we get that air conditioner you promised? But, but could a government mandate deliver that? So, and, I love what you're debating with your students, and I wish I had their certitude. And so I, I believe that market forces accelerate the menu more than mandates do. And there's an implicit assumption they're making about how a mandate maps into progress. And my money's still on that markets map into progress faster than mandates map into progress. Um, let's see, my name's Bob Benson. Uh, I agree with most of what you're saying. What I see is in the rhetoric of the um, climate mitigation, it seems like there's a lot of people that don't want to do adaptation because it lowers the scare factor of the uh, mitigation aspects of it. Can you comment on that? So I agree, and so I call this the lulling hypothesis. If we get too complacent, if the free market team gets too complacent about our ability to adapt, do NASCAR dads and soccer moms, if I can speak in cliches, tune us out? Uh, uh, tune out concerns from Berkeley. And I want to live in a calm world where we're simultaneously innovating on mitigation and adaptation. But there's even an asymmetry in modern environmental economics. And so between between, between work on adaptation and mitigation. And so I, I think I, I want it to be politically correct to talk about adaptation and to have calm debates about benchmarks of adaptation. And if we continue to see frictions in water markets of how we hold such regulators accountable uh, for slowing down adaptation, and these are the discussions I currently don't see. So I'm in regular contact with New York Times reporters, and, and there is not much discussion about the political economy of how we reform these institutions. Uh, and, and that troubles me. And I think it comes back to your point that with the focus on mitigation, that adaptation is, is, is viewed as the easy way out. One last question. Um, hi, my question is for Maria. Um, your work does a really nice job of illustrating the adaptation patterns that we see in the historical record. Is the historical record in any way informative about um, the extent to which maybe the, the city governments engaged in collective action to mitigate some of these effects? So do we learn anything from the historical record about the efficacy or lack thereof of elites' efforts to you know, sort of lessen the damage of some of these impacts? 
So in my in the paper, I look at um, adaptation through trade, and I what what I study is I, I don't put specifically study government interventions. I only observe these um, trade ships, basically. So I would, based on based on the paper I wrote, I wouldn't. Um, May draw any conclusions about government in interventions. It's more from the literature I've been reading while researching the paper that um, um, I've seen evidence again and again of the government, um, oh, well, government, the political rulers of the time um, based on better information that they had on, for example, um, well, I mentioned the potato, um, but also on possibilities they had to establish certain trade relationships and so on, that they played a very um, important uh, role. Um, so like, generally speaking, um, that's something you know, that comes out of this historical literature. But I said last question, but I have such enthusiasm back here, I can hardly resist. If there's a mic handy, can we get it there? Oh, I'm <laughs> sorry, Matt. Get your exercise. <laughs> brief question, brief answer. Thank you. Um, is there an accounting system for the cost? the overall cost of adaptation. I mean, some people gain, other people lose. And so is there a way of accounting for the financial cost of adaptation? And also, um, migration nowadays are much more complex than migrations in the past because we have many more people in the world. And what would be the effects on, on civil unrest and war, the risk of war? Thank you. So I'll go first there. Those are two great questions. I tried to work on her first question. The air conditioner is a great example because that's about adaptation. Your cell phone can be thought of as an adaptation device with its information and communication potential. But what share of that phone do you attribute to adaptation? On the question about migration, with one of Al Roth, Al Roth of Stanford is one of the Nobel laureates here, and one of his students, who's my colleague at USC, were starting a project on climate refugees. So in Al Roth's work, they're trying to facilitate kidney transfer, voluntary kidney transfer. And I'm talking to Afshin Nikzad, my colleague at USC, about how to how to work in internet, how to take the ideas of mechanism design of what Al Roth has been up to on climate resettlement, to, such that if there's a shock at the origin in Assyria, there's gains to trade in international migration markets. If we can if we can facilitate certain political challenges. An example, cities like Detroit and Baltimore are depopulating. If there's a residency requirement that you could more quickly get your US passport if you live in that city for a decade, that would be an example of how to ameliorate political backlash while facilitating a mutually beneficial transaction. So I'm trying to think about your second point about how to use migration as a tool uh, to adapt to the very serious challenges we face. Marie? 
Um, yeah, just one um, small point. Um, I think um, once um, political boundaries were established, migration, um, international migration has always been very difficult. There's always been political backlash. And, um, um, and I... I think what we would there's there's ample evidence that if um, um, migrants can be quickly and well integrated into the labor market, the, about the benefits that migration, international migration, can bring, and I believe that it's important to um, get away from the you know, ideological um, discussion we are having about migration and um, think really creatively about um, new ways of integrating. Um, highly productive individuals into, into um, societies that um, are in dire need of them. Thank you. You always open a Pandora's box if you say, well, I'll take one more question. And now my co-director is over here waving at me with that tiny little point. Okay, take it away, Nick Parker. It's not, it's not a question, but it's a, it's a shout out to Tamil Carlton, who is to my left, an economist at UC Santa Barbara. As a paper uh, published in the QJE recently on the uh, global costs of adaptation, so there's there's numbers in there, so that's that's my comment. Very good. Well, join me in in <laughs> Turn that mic off. Uh, join me in in thanking the two panelists and. Uh,